Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. I was thinking about doing something a minute ago, and then the words that Kevin just said during his prayer kind of confirmed If you will be bold enough to raise your hand if you need physical healing, if you need emotional healing, or if you need spiritual healing in this moment, would you raise your hand? Okay, I want you all to look around. We're not looking at specifically who this is, but I want you to understand we have needs here. And Lonnie's one of them. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. Let us not leave this morning with any type of physical, spiritual, or emotional ailment for the simple fact that we did not ask. Can we agree on that? So let's take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, we honor you in this moment. This is the day that you have made and we choose to rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we know that you're here, not because we prayed for you to be here, but because there is freedom where there is freedom. There, the Spirit of the Lord has has the capability to move in a mighty, mighty, mighty way. And we sense that this morning in our spirits and we ask for more in your name. We ask more from you, our Daddy King. We ask more from you, our big brother Jesus. We ask for more of you, Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us. And we had so many people that just raised their hands, Father, and said they need physical healing, they need spiritual healing, they need emotional healing in this moment. And let it not be said that we left here with this baggage, with these issues, because we didn't ask. So in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, we acknowledge what the Scripture says is truth. We bring these requests for physical, emotional, and spiritual healings to your throne right now. And in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, the name to which there is nothing else in heaven given except to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. In your name, Jesus Christ, we ask for healing. We ask for physical ailments to be healed right now in this moment. We ask for emotional healing to take place in this moment. We ask for spiritual healing to take place in this moment. Would you anoint this place, Holy Spirit of God? Would you move freely? Would you touch And touch, and touch, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, we've been talking about for weeks now, the holiness of God, and these very prayers that we are praying have to do with the holiness of God. We come boldly before the throne of God because of His holiness, because of what He's done in our hearts and our lives. 
And we're asking for more. I hope that's part of your DNA prayer at this point. After weeks of studying, after weeks of looking at the holiness of God, I hope and I pray that in your heart, in your life, day by day, you are crying out and asking God for more. More than your mind can see and comprehend. More than you can understand. And we're not talking about head knowledge. We're talking about heart knowledge here. And God loves that prayer and God honors that prayer when the essence of who we are are crying out and asking God for more. And even though we don't quite understand what that means, we try to figure it out from a scientific perspective. We try to understand that from a theological perspective, from a psychological perspective. All of these different avenues that we use to try to figure God out, we're not satisfied because we can't be satisfied because our minds are finite and we're never going to truly understand the infinite things of God. But we know the truth of Scripture and we proclaim the truth of Scripture. And I encourage you day in and day out, especially in your struggles, to verbally proclaim the truth of Scripture over your heart and your life so that your very eardrums hear your vocal cords proclaiming truth over your life. And God honors that and God moves through that. So we've looked at for weeks now the foundation of the holiness of God. And for at this point, I hope that if anything else that you grasp, if there's anything else that you walk away from, at this point, that God is holy, period. That Jesus is holy, period. That the Holy Spirit that dwells within you and me is holy, period. And therefore, because of the holiness of God... Our hearts cry out for more. Our hearts desire more. Because of the holiness of God, because of the holiness of our Daddy King, because of the holiness of Jesus Christ, our big brother, because of the holiness of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we have the capability and possibly, I hope, desire to cry out for more and more and more. So last week, we looked at the holiness of God through the lens of Isaiah the prophet many thousands of years ago. And what he saw on the throne room of God. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, we do not know. But he had this vision, he had this interaction with God that was absolutely mind-blowing. And how we look at that and apply that to our lives today, the holiness of God. And we looked at that not only through his lens, but understanding what the seraphim, the six-winged angels, are doing around the throne room day in and day out. How they are serving in holiness and purity. How they are worshiping the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we looked at how Scripture cried out to the glory of God. And we imagined with our imaginations what it must have been like to be in that throne room with Isaiah as he saw, as he heard, as he experienced in his body the power and the weight and the majesty and the glory of being in front of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his Father, our Father. And the magnitude of what that looks like. And if you remember from last week, Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God and he heard the glory of God and he experienced in his body the glory of God, the weight of his own depravity, the weight of his own sin, the weight of his, his selfishness, the weight of, of despair was so great on him that it crushed him and it sent him to his knees and it sent him to the floor. 
But then, through the purification process, then being cleansed of his iniquities, being cleansed of his silk, the guilt and, the guilt and condemnation being wiped away, he stood up as a little boy, excited to serve his king, excited to go on mission for the king, excited to change the world for the king. And we know through the evidence of history that he fulfilled that calling. That that, in my imaginations, imagine that little six-year-old boy now, standing up, screaming at the top of his lungs, Send me! Send me! Here I am! He changed a nation. He changed a world. He prophesied the coming of the Messiah. So much of Scripture tying in from Isaiah pointing to the resurrected Jesus Christ. So much truth that we apply to our lives today. Thousands of years later. And walking that out today in holiness and purity. And so today, if you remember last week, I told you we were going to look at Isaiah chapter 6 last week. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 4. And we're looking at a similar idea, a similar mindset of what it was like to be in the throne room. But we're doing this from the, the Apostle John's perspective. Now we don't know if this happened in the body or out of the body. We don't know exactly what, had on, what went on in, in John's heart and his mind. But we get a little bit of a glimpse of this as we start to read the Scripture today. Isaiah had something similar. Uh, John had something similar happen in his heart and his life. It happened to Isaiah, but his description is a little bit different. I want to just look at that. So again today, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to put on your cap of imagination. Use your imagination as we read through this scripture and imagine being in that room. Imagine these descriptions that John pours out as you actually being there seeing the exact same thing. God gave us our imaginations to honor and glorify Him. Take our imaginations captive in this moment and present it as a love offering to God and let Him use our imaginations to experience somewhat of what it's like to be in the throne room. Let me tell you a little bit of a history about John, though, before we jump in. John was one of the apostles. Some think he was the youngest of the apostles. Maybe even a young teenager when he started walking with Jesus. John was the only one at the crucifixion. The only apostle that was at the crucifixion. He was with Mary, Jesus' mother. This same John is attributed to be one of the best friends of Jesus on this earth, if not his best friend. Definitely one of three, Peter, James, and John. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He lived life with Jesus. Now we look at John and say, John was the only one of the apostles who did not die as a martyr for his faith. But I disagree with that statement. He was a martyr. He just died as an old man in captivity. But he still was a martyr for his faith. He died in seclusion. He died after being tortured. He died after all of these horrendous things happened. The only difference in his death is he was not beheaded. And he was not crucified. And he wasn't stabbed or torn apart by lions. As the way some other martyrs died in the early church. He died in seclusion as an old man. Now, the book of Revelation opens as John is testifying to this. He's on this island, this island of Patmos, in seclusion, in separation, because of his years and years and years and years of faithful living out a Christ-like life. So if you can imagine, if he was an early teen, or even a teenager, mid to upper teens, when the time of Christ started walking, he walked with Jesus three and a half years before the crucifixion. At oldest, at the oldest, he was a young adult. And yet he walked for many, many, many years in faithful, humble obedience to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his best friend. 
Now we look at the book of Revelation and sometimes we think that well, this is a revelation that John had. This is not a revelation from John. Let's get that out of our minds. This is not John's revelation. We attribute it to John because he is the one that penned it. This is a revelation of Jesus. And if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, he actually says that. Let's look at Revelation 1, verse 1, before we look at chapter 4. And I just want to read a couple of these verses right here in chapter 1, just to set the standard, set the foundation for what it is that we're seeing today. Because we've got to understand what's going on in John's heart and life. Old man walked with Christ, miracles after miracles, saw some amazing things, did some amazing things for the cause of Christ. Elderly man, locked up had this vision, had this encounter, had this conversation with Jesus. We look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. The very first sentence John acknowledges, this is not my idea, this is not something that I experienced, this is the revelation, a revelation by Jesus Himself that He wanted to share with us, that He wanted to share with me and that I wanted to share with you so that over the course of the history of the world, we can take this revelation and apply it to our lives as Christ followers. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. Absolutely beautiful. This is Jesus' revelation, a revelation that Jesus has, an experience, something that Jesus is intimately, ultimately aware of, connected to, and he shares that with John. Again, in the body, out of the body. We don't know. Was John visibly? Was John literally taking his body up into heaven to experience this? And he's no longer on the island of Patmos. We don't know. Was it something in his quiet time where he was just praying and all of a sudden he had this vision? I don't know. Was it something where he's sitting in his jail cell and yet it was kind of com com combined? Jail cell here, the, the throne of the throne room of God. I don't know. But again, in our imagination, we're walking with John through this. And I want you to acknowledge, uh, see something here that John acknowledges here in just a moment, that this is not only something that Jesus shares, he has the intimate experience and the revelation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you look down just a few verses to verse 4, this is, Jesus's, uh, this is to John, uh, from John to the, to the Messiah's seven communities in Asia, the seven churches. Grace and peace to you, and whom is, and who was, and who is to come. First, he acknowledges grace and peace to you from our God and Father in heaven. That's the foundation of what he's saying to you. I'm coming to you on behalf of what I understand, the interaction that I had, the revelation that God gave Jesus, that he gave to me from God the Father Almighty. And the first thing that I want to acknowledge is that he was, or he, he is, he was, and he is to come superseding time, superseding our finite minds, from everlasting to everlasting, whatever that actually means. Because we have to grasp, we have to understand that the word forever is, is, a, mind that we, is, is, a, is, a, is a word that our mind cannot understand. We have this idea of what forever is, but truly, if you start to think about that word forever, it, it blows your mind. You cannot comprehend because everything that we understand, everything that we understand in this physical, apparent world that our five senses have communication with, everything is finite. Everything has a beginning, has an end. Even the earth itself is not from everlasting to everlasting, but God the Father, God in heaven, who, according to John in this verse, said, who is, who was, and who is to come from everlasting to everlasting is the first one to acknowledge. And then he continues, as well as from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who are the seven spirits? We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. That's the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's the Holy Spirit of God. He's not seven spirits in one, or, or he's not seven separate spirits, seven spirits in one. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we jump into chapter 4. But just to set the foundation. And then, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Let me read that again. Because is this a sentence that applies to you? It is a sentence that applies to me. And it should be a sentence that applies to every single Christ follower. To Him who loves us. Ultimately loves us. And freed us from our sins by His blood. We're talking about death on the cross. And made us a kingdom, a holy priesthood to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. John has set the foundation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Revelation of Jesus given to Him. And then He continues. He continues in chapter 1 with this word that he gets from Jesus. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the letters, are the words, are the instructions that he gives through Jesus. Jesus gives to the angels to give to the churches, these seven churches that are listed in chapter 1. We're not going to jump into that. That's a whole separate topic. But here's what I want you to understand. In those seven chapters, I'm sorry, these seven to the seven churches, these seven words, there are words of exaltation and there's words of instruction and correction. There's praises and there's, uh-uh, you need to get this right. There's you doing this really well and this is what you're not really doing well. You need to refocus and rethink about. And so John is experiencing all this. He's listening to the words. He's being shared to him and he's writing these things down. And then we jump to chapter 4, which is where we're going to camp for, for this week and next week because I really want us to grasp what's going on here. The holiness of God through the lens of John as he sees what's happening in the throne room and how we, because we in our imaginations can see and take part of that, have to walk that out in our own lives every single day. Because the holiness of God has is not limited to this room. It's not limited to a Sunday morning. It's not limited to a preaching, a Bible study, a Sunday morning, Sunday school class. The holiness of God is not limited to anything. It is a 24-7 calling on our hearts and our lives. We looked at that in week one, Leviticus 19.2. Be holy because I... The Lord your God am holy. Be holy because I, Jehovah, your Elohim, am holy. It's a command. It's a command that each of us as Christ followers are giving a command that we are called. We are given authority to walk out. We're told we must walk that out. So every single day, our heartbeat, our desire must be, not should be, not could be, but must be in my work, in my family relationship, in raising kids, and in, in taking care of, of, of my parents. You know, whatever it is that's going on in our hearts and our lives, our day in, day out activity must be based around the foundation that the holiness of God must be supreme in our hearts and our lives. See, the holiness of God is not a foundational aspect of God. It is the foundation. Period. The holiness of God is the foundation for the Christ-like life. Well, I thought that the Christ-like life was based on Jesus and His life and His, on earth. That Jesus came, that He walked for 33 years, lived a sinless, perfect life, that He died on the cross, that He came back to life, that He walked for 40 more days, ascended to the, to the heaven. And based on that, we are Christ followers. Yes, that's absolutely true. But all of that is based on the foundation that God is holy. 
Jesus came to earth because God the Father is holy. Jesus walked a sinless life because God the Father is holy. Jesus died making atonement, making a sacrifice for our sins because God the Father is holy. Jesus came back to life through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because God is holy. Jesus ascended. He sits at the right hand of God, Father Almighty. We see that in Revelation 4 and 5 here in just a little bit. Why? Because God's holy. That is the, the foundation of everything. If my life does not reflect the holiness of God, then my life does not reflect Jesus. <laughs> Awkward silence. That's truth. Look, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Um, who's on the back computer? Can you throw up the clock up there for me just so I can have that? Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, after these things are, are him having a conversation with this angel and having with Jesus. After these things is when he had this information with the se- this conversation about the seven churches and the words that were going out to these seven churches. Okay, After this had taken place is where we see, after these things I looked up and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. So he was not in the throne, throne, throne room yet. He had some type of interaction in this vision, in, this, in the body, out of the body. We do not know whatever was going on. We, solve, we, we see that he has this, this vision. He sees the door of heaven right there, high and lifted up. And he's about to go through or something incredible is about to happen here. But he's got this vision that's happening right there. The door was open in heaven. So do you remember Isaiah last week? Isaiah... As he walked in to the throne room, he saw the throne room, he saw the door, and the foundations of the door started shaking when the seraphim declared the holiness of God. It wasn't the voices of the seraphim that that caused the whole foundation in the room to shake. It was the glory of God. It was the holiness. It was the words of truth that caused the very foundation to shake and move. And so we have John who's walking in. He sees this door standing open in heaven. And the first voice that he heard earlier in chapter 1, which I heard speaking with me like a trumpet, Trumpet. Can you imagine? Now, putting on our imagination caps, putting on our thinking caps, using your imagination. Have you ever had a conversation one with someone and it sounded like a trumpet? That had to be loud. Could it be deafening? It was so loud he had no issue understanding what was being said. When the voice of God is speaking, sometimes we say, based on Scripture, that it's a still, small voice. In this moment, it was not a still, small voice. It was like a trumpet. When are trumpets used? Especially in the throne room, when are trumpets used? Trumpets are used to declare, here comes the king, here comes the queen. In that moment, John, standing right there, he sees the door. He sees the door, and a trumpet resounding in his ear. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. You're about to see the king. A royal, triumphant noise reverberating in his ear drums. So loud that maybe it pierces his ears. I don't know. Can you imagine how loud it must have been? For those of you that are in a marching band or have kids in marching bands, you know how loud those things get. Those trumpets are ear piercing. Can you imagine someone standing next to you Blowing a trumpet in your ear. That's the closest thing that John could describe to the magnitude and to the glory of what he was hearing in that moment. 
And here is what the trumpet voice said. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things, after these letters have been written to these seven churches. And immediately, snap of a finger, a moment's eye, a blink of an eye, I was with the Spirit in that moment. So suddenly he sees the throne room, he sees the door frame to the throne, but he's not there yet. He's been outside the throne having conversation. He's been outside the throne listening to what Jesus was saying to these seven churches. He's been outside of the throne room having having conversation. He sees the door frame and then instantly in the snap of a finger, a blink of an eye, he is inside. How did it happen that fast? I don't know. But that's what he understood. Immediately he was with the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one seated on the throne. You remember Isaiah said he went to the throne room and he looked up and high and exalted. High and lifted up was the throne room of God. John says, I walked in. I was suddenly with the Spirit and I'm there. I'm in the throne room and I see one seated on the throne. And he knew instantly who that one. It wasn't lowercase O. It's an uppercase O. I know the one. One is the King of kings and Lords of Lords. He recognized him in a moment. He immediately knew who was on the throne. Can you imagine what was going on in his heart in that moment? Can you imagine what was going on in his body? What would be going on in your heart? What would be going on in your mind? What would be going on in your body if in the blink of an of a eye, a snap of a finger, you were with the Holy Spirit of God in the throne room of our King of kings and the Lord of lords. What would, what would that do to us? Would it crush us to our knees? Would we stand up and celebrate? Would we jump for joy? Where would you be in that moment? Let's see what happened to John. In verse 3, And the one who was seated was like Jasper and Carnelian in appearance. Now I want to stop there for just a second. Depending on what version of the Bible, some, some versions have it diamonds. Some have rubies. Basically what we're looking at here is fine jewelry. You know, you have to understand the finite mind and the limited vocabulary that John had 2,000 years ago. He's doing his very best 2,000 years ago to describe something that's indescribable. Can you imagine what it must have been like to visualize what it was like to walk in the throne room, to see God high and lifted up, and then use our limited vocabulary to describe glory. Glory has no definition that our minds can truly grasp and comprehend. We can look it up at the dictionary, but it does not do justice to the word glory. And can you imagine not only trying to understand the word glory, but to visibly see it and how it rocked him to the core. Now notice what he did not say. We're very easy to read this. We can look at that and say, well, he's talking about what God looked like. God in his throne was decorated with all this jewelry. And God, uh, with his royal robes, was decorated with this glory. And the train of his robe that Isaiah talked about, uh, we looked at last week, filling the room, was covered with this jewelry. That is not what it says. That's not what he says. He doesn't say Jesus, he doesn't say God the Father is adorned in this jewelry. What did he say? And the one, verse 3, and the one who was seated was like Jasper and Carnelian. He was like rubies and diamonds. He was like fine jewelry in appearance. You have to understand, his words, he could not understand what he was seeing. He could not understand and grasp glory. And the best way he could describe the glory of God was comparing it to the brilliance of what he knew. Fine jewelry. And quite honestly, can we think of anything Finer than fine jewelry to describe if that was us in this moment? Whatever the biggest, most beautiful rocks are, the glimmer, the glare, the, the, the brilliance that we see in jewelry. And he says that's what God was like. 
I can't even understand that. God was like fine jewelry. His glory, the radiance of who He was, radiated. It wasn't like looking at you and me. It wasn't like looking at flesh and blood. He saw something that the best He could describe it, it was radiating jewelry. It was glimmering and shining and beautiful, mind-blowing. And then He continues... And he says, and a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. The most beautiful things he had ever seen. Fine jewelry and rainbows. Can you think of anything more beautiful than fine jewelry and rainbows in all of creation? To the, to the naked eye. What can be more spectacular than that? So with his limited experience, he compared the rainbow to what he saw around the throne of God. And what did that look like? Was the throne there and was it a big circular rainbow? Or was the whole area just multicolored? I mean, what did that actually look like? Can you imagine? Emerald, emerald green glowing, permeating everywhere, everywhere. The very essence of him, beautiful, beyond description. And verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Can you imagine that? So you got this one throne where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is actually sitting. And yet we visualize 24 other thrones. So somehow in this picture, you've got God the Father on the throne, radiating glory, radiating beauty beyond description, rainbows of color permeating away around Him. And then somehow around Him are 24 thrones. Are the thrones circular? Or are they kind of set up like this, where it's kind of, kind of shaped in, in three different columns? Is it a semicircle? What does it look like to these 24 thrones? Are they in one circle around? Are they layered? What does that actually look like? I don't know. But he's got 24 smaller thrones in comparison to the larger throne. And then he looks at the people sitting on the thrones and they're dressed in holiness and purity. That's what the white represents. Holiness and purity. The 24 elders, whoever they may be, dressed in holiness and purity in that moment. And on them are crowns. Golden crowns. Golden crowns. Now imagine for a moment the weight of that crown on your head. Do you know that you have crowns on your heads? In the physical, we can't see them, but in the spiritual, they're there. How do we know that? How do we justify that? Because the Bible says that when we say yes to Jesus, we become adopted into the family of God. And as we visually in our minds go to the throne room, we're all there and we're all dressed in white. And we all have these golden crowns on our heads. And these thrones that he's describing may not be for us, but as princes and princesses in the kingdom of God, you are royalty and you're wearing the crown because you're adopted into the family. That is truth, regardless of your circumstances. That is truth, regardless of what our culture tells us. That is truth, regardless of what our world teaches us. That is truth, regardless of how you feel. If you are a Christ follower, if you have said yes to Jesus, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And through that, you have been adopted into the family of God. And you are a prince or a princess of the Most High God. 
We are there together in the throne room, in our imagination. We are there worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And these 24 elders dressed in white clothes and golden crowns on their heads. And then verse 5, and out of the throne, out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and clashes of thunder. Again, imagine that for a moment. Imagine that for a moment. We saw last week as we looked at Isaiah, some of the visualization that he saw. Where his eyes were touched, his eardrums were touched. And then when the truth of the holiness of God was spoken, those very words, the foundation shook. The foundation of heaven shook. Not because of voices, because of truth. And here we see something very similar, but a little bit different happening in John's life. John says that in that moment as I was looking up to the throne and I was visualizing the throne where the king was sitting, the very throne itself radiated lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The very throne itself. Imagine that for a moment. How on earth can his visual sockets take in all of this? The glory of God, the radiating glory, the colors that are there. What does lightning do to our optic nerves? Well, if it's far off, it's really cool. Man, that was lightning. What happens if lightning were to pop in this room right here, right now? It would blind every single one of us. It would blind us. The enormity, the electricity, the, the brilliance, the brightness of it. And the throne itself is just plain lightning. is blinding him. His optic nerves, he can't take it. He sees flashes of lightning. The lightning, the, the radiating glory of God. This light is so brilliant. The only thing he can compare it to is lightning and rumblings. What happens in your body when your stomach starts to rumble? Your whole body starts to quake, doesn't it? In that moment, his body felt the reverberating intensity coming from the throne itself. He saw it with his eyes, the brilliance of the light. He felt it, the rumblings in his body, as if it was something pushing out and affecting him. And then he heard it in his ears, the crashing, the pills, the, 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 the amount of thunder that's going on there. Thunder in the distance has not hurt us. What does thunder do if lightning strikes right next to our house? It scares us to death. It brings us to our knees. It wakens us. It shocks us. Can you imagine what's going on in John's mind? And in that moment, he's experiencing all three of those simultaneously. Lightning. Rumbling. Power of that rumble. And the, the reverberating noise that that thunder makes. All is the lightning, the rumbling, the thunder. All of those are given glory to God because of His holiness. The holiness of God is reverberating around. And seven torches of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What on earth is that talking about? I thought there was one Holy Spirit. He's talking about seven Fold spirit. What does that mean? Seven different torches representing. We see there's seven different torches because the seven different torches represents the Spirit of God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to go look at that in just a second. Isaiah chapter 11. So the sevenfold Spirit of God is the proclaiming of what the spirits of God were going to be manifested inside of God, of Jesus. We see this dating back to Exodus. Exodus understood the sevenfold Spirit of God back in the Old Testament. That was a very foundational thing about the Holy Spirit of God. Use your imagination for a moment. You have Moses. 
Moses constructed what we call the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is where he went to have fellowship and communion with God. Over the course of time, the tent of meeting became the tabernacle. The tabernacle later became the temple. In the tabernacle, imagine a large rectangle representing the outline of the ground, the outline of the, ta- of, of the tabernacle, okay? The outer courts. The outer courts represented purification. It re- represented the blood sacrifices, okay? Inside of that large rectangular closed-in area is a tent. This is, this, it is a rectangle as well. And inside that rectangle is carved right down the center a tapestry, a veil. So what you see outside looking in, on top looking down, you see a rectangle that is divided in the center, making it two squares. The outer square that they would go into is called the holies. The inner square was called the holy of holies. The outer square, the holies, represented the Holy Spirit of God. That's where they constructed and placed the menorah. The menorah all throughout the Old Testament is this candelabra, the way we would describe it today, made out of one solid piece of gold. And it had seven buds on it, representing the sevenfold spirit. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God the Father. So when we look at that today, we say the outside where the blood sacrifice would be Jesus. The Holies represented the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy of Holies represented God the Father. Where is sevenfold spirit in the Scripture? Because we see it right here in Revelation chapter 4. I want us to look back at Isaiah chapter... 11. For just a moment, you don't have to pull there. I'm just going to read two verses. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. The shoot, then the shoot will come forth out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch will bear fruit out of his roots, prophesying Jesus' coming. Okay? And then it says in verse 2, The Spirit of Adonai, the Spirit of God, will rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and insight, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of Adonai. You see that sevenfold spirit right there, Old Testament, prophesying what was going to be internally indwelled with God, now verbalized. That's, that's what the menorah represented in the Old Testament. We still that, see that written today in Revelation. And so that's what he's paying homage to. These seven are the manifested glory of the Holy Spirit of God right there in the throne room of God. So in the throne room of God, we see the God the Father on the throne, high and lifted up. The Holy Spirit represented in the flame, seven torches. And then on the right-hand side of God the Father Almighty is Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in chapter 5 a little bit later. Not today. And a sigh of relief. Verse 6, And before the throne was something like a sea of glass like crystal. Can you imagine that? Absolute, flawless beauty. To the best that John's able to describe is this holiness of God. And in the middle of the throne room and around it were the four living creatures. We looked at these guys last week. We called them the seraphim. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. Imagine that. The second living creature was like an ox. Can you imagine that? And the third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was flying like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within. As I told you last week, for several thousands of years, artists have tried to grasp and dictate and imagine what Isaiah saw so many thousands of years ago. 
And the same thing is true of John. For 2,000 years, artists have tried to come up with what this actually looked like. What was it that John was describing? Was it, the, was it the body of a human with the face of a man and the face of an ox and the face of a lion and the face of an eagle? Or was it the actual beast? And was it covered with wings? And what does it mean that he had eyes before and behind and all within? What does that actually mean? The description is beyond comprehension. We know that these holy beings in the holy of holies in the throne room are giving praise and glory to God 24-7. And here's what they're saying. They do not rest day or night. Into verse 8. And they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Adonai Elohim Zavuot, the Lord God of hosts, who was and is and who is to come. And this is where we're going to stop today, but I've got I to dig in here for just a moment. So you've got these seraphim in heaven, beyond description. Their detail that John gives is so much more descriptive than what Isaiah had given. So much more for our minds to grasp and understand and comprehend that we can't quite do it. But we acknowledge that nonstop, day and night, says in Scripture, they're crying out from the very essence of who they are. They're chanting, they're reverberating, they're speaking this, they're singing this nonstop. Holy, holy, holy. And one of the Messianic Jewish translations, it says that, that possibly this is actually uttered nine times instead of three times before they continue. Holy, 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 is Adonai Elohim Zavuot, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of angel armies. I love the complete Jewish Messianic version of this, it says, God of the heavenly armies. Absolutely beautiful. God of the heavenly armies. And so we look at God as our daddy king. We look at him high and lifted up. And he's got a great big smile. And he's got that throne. And he's got that head, that head full of hair. And that big crown going on. Train of his robe fills the temple. I want you to look at him also as might and power. Because he is Adonai. Elohim. Zavuot, the God, the Lord God of angel armies, of the heavenly armies, of the heavenly hosts. Think about the power that that represents. Think about how he is adorned as the general, as the king, as the one who's in charge, who has all power and all authority. That is him in that moment. Both Isaiah and John acknowledge that same name. John adds one word. He adds Elohim. So Isaiah said, Adonai Zavuot, the Lord of the angel armies, the Lord of the heavens of armies. John adds Elohim, the Lord God of angel armies. And then they cry out something beautiful. Holy, holy, holy is Adonai Elohim Zavuot, who was and is and is to come. Do you notice the difference between that and how Isaiah cried out? Isaiah cried out, all of the earth declares His glory. So Isaiah, years before John, in his vision of the throne, in the body, out of the body, we do not know, in his interaction in the throne, he acknowledged holy, holy, holy. The very foundation of our Christian walk. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he says, 
All of the earth declares His glory. All of creation, the birds singing, the green grass, the beautiful blue skies, the stars at night, the sun in the, in the heavens, the moon at, and in the evenings. All of creation itself declares the glory of God. We see that all through Scripture. We've been told in Scripture, if we do not cry out to His glory and His manifest holiness, that the rocks themselves will cry out on our behalf because we won't do it. All of creation declares the glory of God. That's what Isaiah is looking at. The natural realm. The things that we can see and touch and comprehend. John digs in from a different perspective based on what he heard the seraphim crying out. And it's the aspect that we cannot comprehend. Eternity. From everlasting to everlasting that melts our minds. We can't comprehend it. We try and try and try, but forever is just right outside of our grasp. What does it mean that He always is? He always has been and always will be. That's easy to say. We're in church. We're supposed to stay stuff like that. How does that sink into the essence of who you are? How do we walk that out day in, day out? He's from everlasting to everlasting. Had no end. Had no beginning. Wow. And they're crying out truth nonstop, 24-7 in the way that we understand time. The holiness of God is being declared over and over and over. And that's where we're going to stop today. But read ahead to the rest of 4 and 5, and we're going to jump into that next week because, guys... Here's, here's, here's why we're doing this again. I want you to understand the reason that we're doing this is so vital. You may ask, how long are we going to continue talking about holiness? Forever. Anytime that you hear me up here in conversation, in youth ministry, wherever, this is beyond foundational, as I said. This is the foundation. Everything else in our Christian walk, in our Christian life, is based on the holiness of God. God is holy whether or not my physical, emotional, and spiritual healing took place today or did not take place today. He's still holy. In faith, we believe. In faith, we ask. In faith, we get on our knees and we cry out and we beg and we ask for more. Look at these different attributes of God, the God that heals, the God that knows, the God that's all-sufficient, the God of angel armies. And we look at His power and we look at His love. We look at Him as a daddy. We look at Him as our father. We look at Him as the king. And all of that is truth. The foundation is He is holy. You want to know why we've not spent weeks on weeks on weeks talking about how we live that out? Because I don't think we've grasped the foundation that He's holy. So how on earth are we supposed to walk this out if I don't even realize and grasp His holiness? It's like trying to ace a test that I've not studied for. That I have no acknowledgement about. I have no history. I've got no training. The holiness of God is foundational for all aspects of our lives. Not just church. difference between secular and sacred. That's something we've made up. Quite honestly, it's probably something the devil made up. 
There's no difference between secular and sacred. We create that. We categorize that. This is of God. This is not of God. This is sacred and holy. This is just the way that I live my life. This is something else. This is church life and this is work life. There is no separation. It's all holiness or it's all sin. That's the only two options. My heart's desire is to walk into holiness and purity. My heart's cry is clean hands, pure heart, and a resolute spirit. But I have to ask that and have to study and I have to process and I have to meditate through a lens of holiness. That God is holy. And because of His holiness, His glory shines. Because of His holiness, His love pours out. Because of His holiness, Jesus walked in obedience. Because of His holiness, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's all because of His holiness. And I will never be able to fully grasp it and understand it. But my heart's desire is to live out Leviticus 19.2 and be holy because the Lord my God is holy. As a heart's cry, desire. I intentionally walk in that. I intentionally ask for that. I intentionally desire that. But that's my choice. That's not my wife's choice. That's not my children's choice. That's my choice for me. I cannot choose it for them. I cannot choose it for you. That's the bad part about free will. <laughs> he gives it to the choice. And He wants us to. He wants us to say yes. He wants us to beg for more. But as I tell the teenagers all the time, God loves us so much, He will honor us not asking. And will honor that request of not giving because we did not ask. If the scripture is true, and I believe that it is, where it says you have not because you ask not, that applies to healings, that applies to more of God, that applies to gifts of the Holy Spirit, that applies to healing of, of, of marriages, that applies to asking for more to be able to impact the world for Him. He wants to give it to us. We simply have to cry out and ask for more. So what is the more that you're seeking today? What is the more as we sing that you want to ask God for? What is the more that you desire? And ask. And if it doesn't happen today, then ask again. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow, ask again. And if it doesn't happen the day after that, don't stop asking. If our heart is in tune with Him, if our heart is in tune with holiness, don't give up. Don't give up. In our culture, we believe that after two or three times, if we pray, God doesn't answer it. It's just not His will. The problem is you can't defend that biblically. And if I can't defend it biblically, then maybe I need to change my thinking on some things. We're going to sing. I don't know where you are in your heart and your life. The holiness of God is foundational. If you don't grasp the holiness of God, ask Him to help you grasp the holiness. If your heart cry is for more, define that more and ask for it. Let's walk intentionally in holiness. Let's choose to walk in purity, right standing with God. And when we make a mistake, cry out, God, I made a mistake. Help me not to make it again. And fill me this day with more of you. In Jesus' name.
find out more about First Baptist Church, go 